I, I am Ellen Halsper. Uh, I work here at the um, Media Communications Department for the London School of Economics, uh, where I actually do research in digital literacy, so I'm very happy to be chairing this panel. Um, we have three interesting, amazing speakers this evening, so um, I don't want to talk too long. I want to give the floor to them. Um, we are going to um, start with uh, Miranda Glover, who said she introduce herself and say everything there is you need to know about the work that she's done. Uh, then uh, Charlie Lapleader will talk for uh, also for about 10 minutes and we'll end with um, Sam Revere who will close off. After that we'll have uh, questions. So uh, what we're probably going to do is take uh, three questions at a time and then have the panel reply uh, to your questions. Afterwards, um, the authors of the books have agreed to do uh, a signing that it will be basically there's drinks after the event, and they are there's books there that you could buy their books, and they'd be happy to sign um, if you would want a signed book. So I'll I'll stop talking now. I'll uh, hand over to Miranda, who's going to start uh, with our panel this evening on new media and the future of literacy. Hi there. Um, is this working? Am I right? Yes, I think you're. Yeah. Right. Can you hear me? Yes. Good evening. Um, I thought I'd tell you a little bit about myself to put a context to where I think the past might have been. Um, I can see a lot of you here are younger than I am today. Um, I've, I've been around in the sort of publishing space for about 15 years, so my story is a story of transition from old to new. And I think that's quite interesting in itself in the way that um, I've seen change occur and I'm seeing further change happening. I'm quite an unusual character in that I have two hats. I have a hat as a novelist, but I also work in the new media space. So I work within a consultancy that advises big corporations about their brand positioning and, and also about how to communicate new technologies onto the, markets, onto the marketplace. So I've got, an, I suppose, quite an unusual space here in that I create content, but I also communicate technology. Um, so just to go back before I come to where I think it might be going, um, I started out working in the sort of dot-com industry when the first, the first wave of web was happening, and I worked in an, an international consultancy with lots of businesses like lastminute.com, for example, and we sort of set them up. Um, and I saw services being offered and, and originally. People were emailing. They weren't really texting, and phones were very new, but... It was really a service-oriented industry. Um, I always wanted really to write books, and I took some time out post that stage in my career, and I wrote three novels. Um, meanwhile, I continued to do a little bit of consulting, but I did that through a mainstream publishing house, through Random House, and I published three novels over seven years um, while I was bringing up my small children, one of whom is now here today, which is really lovely. Um, for me, but um, while I was doing that, I was writing, and I was writing in a formal context because I was writing for a traditional publishing house, um, which was a very interesting experience at a time where really the publishing houses were in crisis. You know, they were had. I was still. I got, I was very lucky. I think it was the last wave of getting proper advances for fiction. You know, for a new writer, and I got a deal for my first book, and then for two more books. And there were proper substantial sums to write books. And I think that's something that the digital space has really changed since that time. And in fact, once I'd written my third novel, 
I felt rather at sea because although my novels had been well reviewed, they weren't being marketed by my, my, by, by my publishing house. And the reason they weren't being marketed by my publishing house was because my publishing house was in a state of real flux, I think, in terms of how to market new writers. There weren't any bookshops left. They were all vanishing, you know, by the day. You know, big um, chains were going out of business. And they weren't getting the shelf space. And in fact, in my case, my first two books did really quite well through Tesco's. But my third book wasn't taken by Tesco's because it was considered to be too polemic by them and they didn't think it really was commercial enough. And the publishing houses hadn't quite got into the, the whole digital space really yet. And they, uh, one of my, in fact, my publisher said to me, we're like a huge ship and it's really, really hard to turn us around. Um, so what I then did was kind of go back into consultancy and think, oh, God, I just... You know, it is such hard work writing a novel. I'm sure there are people here who have written books. I'm sure amongst you there are. I mean, it's blood, sweat and tears, and it takes a lot of time. And if you're bringing up a family and you've got to earn money, you know, there's, there's a balance to be, to be had there. But for me, I guess, the, the interesting thing was that I'm fascinated by digital space and by digital communication and how it works and where it's going. And I brought to bear my experience of writing and my previous experience to go back into that space really full-time. And I've been doing that now for the last three years. Um, I haven't stopped writing. I set up a little independent imprint. And I publish print-on-demand with other writers, um, (coughs) short story collections. And I've just done a big communal collection with the Women's Institute, which is a memoir collection of stories. And I've really tried to use that as an opportunity to see how writing can move into a digital arena really quite effectively and really quite profoundly effect- in a profoundly affecting way for the people involved. So um, we've set up blogs, we've set up community spaces, people are sharing writing, and through that I've published three books um, over the last three years. So I haven't written novels, but I've... I've actually kind of co-curated, which is obviously a buzz term, two collections of short stories, which have really done quite well, and have done quite well on Amazon. Um, print, and they're just about to go into e-books, these two, but also this collection that's not my writing at all, which is with the Women's Institute of Memoirs. And this was written online through a series of virtual groups, and then I brought together the best 60 stories, and they're sort of like a social history of the last... 50 years, really, of women's lives, ordinary lives. And that's only been possible because of the digital revolution. Now, this is print-on-demand. No book gets printed unless somebody orders a copy, which is fantastic because it still gets printed and it's lovely and it's tactile and you can feel and enjoy and read and really kind of, you know, treasure this experience. But there's nothing in a warehouse. There's no, there's no surplus for anybody. So only books that are really wanted get printed. And I think that's very good. But meantime, people are continuing to build those communities we started through these projects online, and they're doing their own writing there as well. And that's finding its own niche audiences. And I find that all very exciting, because to me, that's about writing finding its place in a way that these big commercial businesses, like well, from my experience, from Random House, unless you can get into Tesco's or you can get into those big spaces traditionally, it's very hard for them to get enough traction to make enough return to really support you. But in the digital space now, everything's really shifting around. It can make it much more difficult for people, but at the same time, it opens up immense opportunity. So I'm a champion, I guess, but I also treasure books. 
So that's my kind of position on this. I think I've probably said enough. Okay, that's right. Okay, yeah. that's an introduction. <laughs> okay, great. Thank yeah. you. Oh, oh. While he's trying to get them, um, for those who, of you who don't know, Charlie um, is the author of um, We Think and the Power of um, Mass Creativity. And we'll see. Sorry, do I need to turn this one as well? It's, uh, so would it be... I don't know how to Okay. Well, just um, very briefly, um, I'm suffering from the after-effects of flu, amongst other things, so I do apologise. My voice is nowhere near as strong. Um, I wanted to start in a slightly different place, which is um, the experience that you would have had had you been to school 40 years ago of learning to write a letter, that um, learning to write a letter was a kind of really important moment because um, it, you, know, you were taught where to put your address, someone else's address, forms of address, paragraphs, endings. And there was a sense that when you were learning to write a letter, you were learning to kind of represent yourself in the world and learning how to read other people's representations of you and that it was some important skill that actually you only ever used to write thank you letters after Christmas. But um, it nevertheless had this sense that what being literate, I suppose, means is in some sense mastering a system which is impersonal to convey the very personal and to ingest through some universal system other people's very personal accounts of themselves. And so that in some sense being literate it seems to me means being able to access a system for creating and understanding empathy. That literacy is a way, is a sort of system for empathy. It's a way of systematically creating understanding and empathy. And I suppose my memory is that there were issues like whose literacy is it? Is it the BBC's literacy or is it middle class literacy? but pretty much it was pretty unproblematic. And it involved tools, if you were very sophisticated, like this 1972 Olivetti Valentine typewriter, um, uh, which I fell in love with 30 years ago and I finally bought about a year ago on the internet. And the Olivetti typewriter is a, it's a system, there's a QWERTY keyboard and there are all these very beautiful kind of levers and stuff like that. Um, but it's a fairly unproblematic tool when you compare it with this. So this is also a tool, and this is a vastly more powerful tool than that Olivetti typewriter, but the point is not just that this has the power to do many more things, but that this is not just a tool. This is a system in a completely different sense of the word. This is a system to which we are kind of attached and tethered as much as we are set free. And so that whole sense, that being literate, is being able to use a system to represent yourself to the world and to understand how others are representing themselves to you, then takes on a new meaning in the context of these kinds of things. And I just want to show you two pictures which um, help me think about that kind of dilemma. 
So this is a picture um, that I took in the Lake District last year on a walking trip with my 13-year-old son. It was the end of an amazing day where we walked across six peaks. And uh, this is Waswater. This is a, a kind of landscape partly made by literature because romantic poets and actually we read our way through the Lake District because we were following um, Wainwright's guide to the, way, Lake, the Lake District which you know, is a beautifully written thing um, and we had pictures of this scene in my home and so every way in which um, you see this is already partly to do with literature but why did I take that picture there? I took that picture there because something sort of both kind of relieving and sad happened, that's where I got my signal back. <laughs> this was the point at which my phone kind of came back into life and alerted me to its renewed kind of zest and demanded, in some sense, that I sit down. So I took it because actually my phone almost told me to sit down at that point because there might be really, really urgent things that I needed to attend to. And I, I don't know if, I mean, for me anyway, there was a mixture of relief and deep, deep sadness. Why could I not simply resist the phone, put it to one side, discard it? Um, and why did I need its reassurance that I really was a person? Because I was actually still connected to all these networks within which I was representing myself. And so all across the Lake District, you go to Sty Head. Sty Head is this tarn where everyone comes together and then goes off in different directions. At Sty Head, the most boring conversation in the English language takes place. Have you got a signal? That is the most boring sort of conversational topic. Have you got a signal? Have you got a signal? Oh, that person over there has got a signal. And suddenly, the sort of acquisition of a signal is the acquisition of personhood, in a way. You, you are still a person because you've got a signal. Oh, your signal's dropped off, you might no longer be a person. And so there's something kind of um, both incredibly um, kind of optimistic, uh, helpful, you know, you name it about these things, the power <coughs> that they give you, and yet in some sense, they appear like a trap. In other words two ways of thinking about it. One is, it's great, isn't it, that we can constantly update ourselves about what one another is doing and so on and so forth, but who on earth thought it would be a good idea to give some people in Silicon Valley the job of designing a template in which we could express our empathy towards one another? I mean, why would you choose the most autistic people in the world <laughs> to design the world's sort of system for sort of communicating with one another? Or to put it another way, the question about these things is, are they for us or are we for them? That's the question. Are we increasingly designing our lives so that we fit within their templates, regimes, <coughs> signals, connections, and so on and so forth? So is the system dominating our ability to represent ourselves or are they really for us, they're just tools? So that's a slightly melancholy story about <laughs> what you might feel in this sort of English landscape where you realise you, you are emotionally tethered to this thing and how did it come about that you can't possibly go anywhere without it. So this is a slightly different vantage point which 
is just to say it matters where you look. So this is Azra and this is Maureen and this is a slum in Nairobi called Kibera. And if you go here, um, apart from the railway line, the only infrastructure really that works, that cuts across rich and poor, is this. Um, the only thing that's really reliable is this. Um, and that for people in these settings, it seems to be, and the same is true across India, Pakistan, much of Asia, um, what these represent is not just an explosion of possibility to learn, to bank, to argue, to connect, to organise, you name it, um, but they also mark your arrival. That they mark your arrival as a person because you really count, because you've got a number, you can be found, you can be located, you are part of the system. In other words, our uncertainty that these things might sort of embrace us in systems that we feel uncomfortable with, here is embraced as huge possibility. And so I don't think there can be any doubt that if you view it from this perspective, the possibility that these things will lead to an explosion of reading, writing, arguing, dissenting, expressing, and so on and so forth, that is um, a huge explosion of possibility of a kind that we haven't yet come anywhere near to understanding, but the impact of that on how people learn and what they can do with what they learn will be absolutely huge. So from this perspective, entering this world becomes really, really powerful and very, very important. So what would I, just finally, what would I say by way of, I suppose, advice about thinking about the future? One is that it does seem to me that all the ways in which we think about technology that say we are subjects, this is an object, it's a tool and we achieve something with it and we represent ourselves into an external world using this tool, all of that's completely unhelpful. That actually the only really interesting philosophical approaches are where subjects and objects continually redefine one another and we are constantly defining ourselves using systems which in their very essence are defining us at the same time and it's a sort of dynamic interaction. And that most of the traditions of philosophy which help us think about those things do not come from the Anglo-Saxon world, they come from elsewhere. And you would need to read Nietzsche, Heidegger, um, and others in order to get a kind of handle on that. And the final thing is, um, there's a great book, which is sadly only in Italian and Dutch, by a man called Alessandro Barrico, called The Barbarians. And it's a, an account of cultural change, in which he's constantly trying to account for the rise of the barbarian energy of new forms of culture. And his recommendation with relation to all of this is essentially where Miranda ended, which is, above all else, don't be sniffy. Above all else, don't just write it off. Don't think that you're above it, because there's potential in it to do amazing things. And so the worst attitude towards this stuff, it seems to me, is to assume that somehow we're better or above it or beyond it. Thank you very much, John. Right, uh, now, Sam here, who is, uh, his debut collection, right, um, is 81 Austerities. I don't know if that's what you're going to talk about, but look forward to it. Thank you very much. Um, uh, I've realised I should probably um, uh, say a little bit about probably why I'm here or um, 
uh, what my, uh, what, if anything I've got to say about it is interesting, what that would be based on. Um, so a little bit about how my book came about was um, I'd been writing poetry sort of seriously with the intention of wanting to be published and, to, and people to read it for, since the early 2000s, since 2001 or two, um, and had had some sort of modest success publishing poems in magazines and stuff like that, taken a long time seemingly to get to that point. Um, I was, had done the creative writing pathway, so I'd done my degree in creative writing <laughs> I was, uh, and cultural studies, and I'd done an MA in um, creative writing poetry. Um, by 2008, I was doing a PhD in creative writing. So uh, uh, that, something that, as I've often had to explain to people when what I'm doing, it's all I study, creative writing, which um, a lot of people, particularly sort of friends of my parents, would... Would, would think was insane, you know, that uh, this, this is ridiculous. So I got quite used to, I fell into the habit of defending it. Um, but I think uh, also coming through it in that way um, and sort of seeing it from the inside, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm sort of at once I'm, I'm sceptical about it as well as, having, as being a sort of product of it. So um, uh, I thought that's in a way the subject of my book, which is um, poetry, I know this... this I don't realise how unappetising this sounds, but poems about poems to some extent. Um, uh, and, and not apologising about that, which is my immediate um, impulse. Um, so that, that was... Uh, but the, the reason that the, I started writing the poems in that way was, was to do with, directly to do with um, encountering poetry online in a digital environment and a sort of poetry that I had completely not encountered until I um, was on my PhD and had, um, you know, a, co a completely uh, unjustifiable amount of spare time um, to, uh, to look around on the internet for hours as I pleased. And, um, and when I was doing that, I, uh, I suddenly became interested <laughs> in the fact that I'd, whenever I'd encountered, especially when I was probably in my early 20s, whenever I'd encountered um, poetry online, I'd sort of assumed it was vanity publishing and assumed it was sort of inherently uninteresting, that, oh, if this hasn't come through the proper systems, uh, if this hasn't been validated by the, you know, the, the proper gatekeepers, the proper editors haven't vouched for it, it can't possibly be any good. Um, and I, I was never someone who sort of, or I've never been someone who thinks of myself as conservative, but after a while I sort of realised how conservative that approach was, um, especially when I discovered a sort of, I guess a sort of writing scene, a poetry writing scene online a few years ago, um, which has sort of become, you hear it mentioned occasionally in, in the mainstream press now, um, sometimes called alt-lit or internet poetry, and it, it's writing very much produced for an online environment. Um, it's uh, generally much shorter than most of the poems I used to, used to reading. I mean, often only two or three lines. Um, completely uh, not exhibiting uh, lots of the things I would have expected from poems, metaphors, sort of... Uh, 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 concise and um, effectively sculpted language. It all sounded very immediate, sort of like a, a garbled text message a lot of the time. Uh, and I sort of thought, oh, wh why do I like this? Because it does all the, all the things that I should find unappetising poetry. Yet there was something so immediate and bracing about it and, and aggressive to the tradition that I had grown up with through creative writing courses and, a, and, a, and sort of saw myself as someone who had quite a lot invested in that tradition. And this seemed to be attacking that tradition. So I think, when I, I think any experience I've had of reading um, poems when I've really liked them, the experience has been slightly of being wounded. You know, it, it's as if the, the poem is wounding you with its goodness somehow. Um, 
uh, it's sort of hurting you because you haven't been able to um, articulate that yourself or you haven't you know, almost had the guts to approach it in that way. Um, and I think whenever there's been sort of abrupt revolutions in poetry, which, you know, maybe that's the real tradition of poetry, that it goes through these sort of periods of um, revolution and change, um, you know, with, with modernism and then maybe with uh, the New York School or something like that in the 50s and 60s. Um, there seems to be something aggressively anti-poetic about those changes sometimes, that using language that shouldn't be used in a poem. Um, so I discovered this sort of writing, and I think the most noticeable effect of it was that when I, um, when I started reading it and then looked at my own poems, I felt very embarrassed by my own poems in retrospect. They seemed so over the top. They seemed so uh, as if they were trying to make a profound moment out of something that was you know, basically banal um, and an insistence on that uh, on, on a sort of moment of profundity or a sort of a, a kernel of sort of beauty or, or, or sort of truth of experience at the heart of the poem was exactly what these poems were, re- were rejecting that I had begun to read so they were, so they were admitting that they were banal in a lot of ways um, but that, that admission itself had some authenticity at the heart of it and it had some sort of um, self-scrutiny that I thought was completely after a time, I found absent in, in the, the sort of mainstream poetry that I was um, that I'd grown up in and, and, and also and continued to enjoy. It made it look flabby and, and full of itself. Um, so I think uh, what, what proceeded to happen then is I sort of changed my writing style quite abruptly um, and started writing poems in this different way. And I published them on a blog um, uh, and used social networks to, to draw attention to my blog. Um, and uh, some people read it, some people liked it, uh, and I'd had a pamphlet out with Faber at that time, which was sort of like my older stuff, and then uh, they surprised me by saying they wanted to publish this, uh, the new work, which I thought was um, uh, exactly the sort of thing they wouldn't publish, which is, which is why I'd put it on the blog. The, the sort of uh, contradiction, that, the contradiction and the su- something of the proof of the way, uh, like Simon was saying, uh, the proof... That, uh, that the systems in which uh, writing is produced sort of define the type of writing that is produced by those systems, um, uh, is that uh, by trying to do something that was outside of that block, in fact, what happened is the, the mainstream publishing system simply expanded to include it um, uh, and, and sort of take away any of the, in, in, a, in a funny way, take away any of the, um, the, potentially, uh, uh, the potential resistance or refusal of mainstream publishing that the work may have had before that. So it was sort of um, neutralised by being published in a book. So, uh, uh, but, you know, obviously I was very pleased to have my book published. So I think, uh, I think these sort of um, tensions, this anxiety that I think you were talking about to do with um, the way we use uh, the internet... And the, this idea of the commodification of, of emotions and um, rela- human relationships is something that, uh, as, at the same time as being quite liberating and um, quite fun, I'm a you know, big fan of Twitter, um, there is also this sense that, uh, that every time you do something like that, you know, there, are, there are subtle adjustments being made to do with your own self-perception and your perception of others. And also money is moving around often you know, when these things are happening, you know, Facebook advertising or something, you know. So it's to some extent, when you're doing, when you're interacting online in this way, you know, you're a sort of um, pipe for money to move through somehow. Uh, there's something sort of debasing about it, but I think uh, a, a usage um, and and a complete uh, doubt 
at the same time was it seems to be the sort of most fruitful way forward um, in that it means those systems should become sensitive to those concerns um, and maybe that just means they, they become more covert about doing I've sort of gone off, this isn't what I was going to talk about but um, <laughs> uh, that's probably been about ten five minutes, minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, five more minutes, okay well um, what I was going to talk about is that um, uh, Kenneth Goldsmith is a, a conceptual writer who um, recently said something like uh, that literature has met its photography um, with a digital environment, which is a nice, is a nice phrase uh, in the sense that when painting, when photography happened, painting had to sort of aggressively adjust to the, the feats that photography had made possible. So, you know, realism suddenly didn't become the objective anymore. I realise this is quite a simplistic way of putting it. But I, I like the idea that... Um, that literature, in a way, has encountered that same moment now, and that text is infinitely—it's just so much more—it's so much easier to reuse, to appropriate text, to um, reframe it. Uh, a few, quite a few of the poems in my book I didn't write; I, I found them online and simply presented them as, as poems. Um, and I think uh, I think um, something that Kenneth Goldsmith talks about is this idea, and the critic Marjorie Perloff, this idea that originality is, is ceasing to become the sort of goal of a creative writer. That, um, in fact, the, the way Perloff talks about it is, is almost as if the, the writer is someone who selects um, and organises material, and that is the, the actual function, and it always has been the function of a writer to do that, you know, in the sense that... Um, there's always a model for a poem, you know, which, whichever poem you are writing or reading. There's always a poem before it that is sort of shaded around, you know, shading in the corners of that poem. You're aware of uh, repetitions of formula, even if that's direct use of a sonnet or something like that. But, you know, doesn't Eliot say something like to total originality in poetry is impossible because it would be total, totally meaningless? It would have no relationship to the tradition of poetry. So... Um, there's always a, a sense that writing a poem is, is a, an act of rewriting or an act of um, writing over the top of the poetry that has already come before. And I think the, the, the ideas of this um, in, that conceptual writing make us think about uh, open, the, open this idea of unoriginality as to, as to being, being an opportunity rather than a, limit, a limitation. I remember when I first started to write, I, I sort of thought, oh, this just, you know, you can write about everything, but it seems like everything has already been done. Um, and that felt almost like a, a sort of enclosing horizon rather than a, um, a, a one that um, opens up to other things. I think once that anxiety about originality has sort of been diffused, if, you, if you're forced to confront it directly, it's like, OK, nothing I write is original. It's no longer a, being original is no longer a problem. It's, uh, the way you might reuse text becomes uh, uh, a sort of series of opportunities. Um, uh, and I think this is, again, like the, uh, the internet poetry I was talking about. Parts of what some of this writing does, I think, is expose that this is what happens in writing anyway. But this is an, these are ideas that, that writers don't, that don't like often because uh, it means the idea, you know, romantic ideals of inspiration or imagination suddenly seem fraudulent. Um, you know, the idea that, uh, that there is something like a moment of inspiration seems to me uh, writers like Kenneth Goldsmith are, are, are sort of refuting that idea that a moment of inspiration is actually a, a moment of falsehood or a moment of uh, copying, you know. Um, so I think this, this starts to, again, like shift the way we perceive um, the literature that we've grown up with and, and uh, you know, maybe want to emulate if, you want, if we want to write. How am I, how am I doing it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, at a certain point, I want to wrap it up. Um, I'll wrap it up. Um, 
Um, oh yeah, fine. Okay, so basically, finally, there's a, a poet called Charles Bernstein who um, uh, has written a, a book called Attack of the Difficult Poems, um, uh, uh, which is a sort of argument against um, categorising poetry in the ways that we're making almost genres of literature in the way that we're accustomed to. Um, but something he says is that dissatisfaction is what produces innovation rather than this moment of inspiration as if it's come from nowhere, that actually it's a, it's a dissatisfaction with the previous writing. So writing is in some senses a correction of the writing that has come before. Um, and so there's, an, there's a, always a sense of hostility in, in, uh, in developing a tradition. There's a sense of um, correcting what has come before or um, reacting against it. Um, and I think the exciting thing about uh, the possibilities presented by, the, uh, by digital environments um, and by publishing through that, which I haven't really gone into, um, there's plenty of uh, opportunity, of way, new ways of doing that that haven't really been done before. Um, there's new ways to uh, 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 produce work that is um, a, a genuine alternative to sort of mainstream publishing channels and that operates in a more horizontal way than a, than a vertical way and as such disrupts the way the normal publishing world runs um, in its sort of top-down way. Um, but I'll leave it there. Um, thank, you. thank you. I'm sure if people want to know more, they can ask you to tell a little bit more. Okay, uh, well, thank you, uh, all three of you, for a really interesting uh, presentations. Um, so uh, we'll have some questions uh, from, uh, from the audience. Um, if you could please uh, wait for the mic to get to you, You'll raise your hands, and um, we'll have three questions at the same time if there's enough questions. Is there anybody who already wants to... Yes. If you could maybe also say a little bit, if you want to, where you're from, so that we can, we can get an idea of who's talking. Thank you. Uh, good evening. Um, my name is William Wong. Um, I, I work as a social entrepreneur, but I was also a visiting fellow here a couple of years ago. But just one quick question for Miranda, and also general observation for all of you. Um, Miranda, you talked about the WI memoirs, yeah. which is print on demand. Yeah. Now, I, I don't work in the printing industry, but from conventional uh, wisdom and history, printing a thousand copies of whatever is per rata much cheaper than, say, printing a hundred. Maybe it's changed now. I'm just sort of curious how that works. If I just want one book. Uh, yeah, it has, it has really changed because of the digital nature of printing. That's why it's changed. So to print, one used to print on a structured template where you were printing numbers of copies and numbers of pages in unison. Now you're printing a single book through a, a, a lithographic graphic printer, which means that one copy can just be digitally printed on its own. So you no, never, you no longer really get essentially an economy of scale in the same way. Okay. And just That's a general observation for, for all of you, if I may. Just listening to all of your, your um, comments and expressions, it reminds me of a book by Samuel Huntington, it's called A Clash of Civilizations, which perhaps some of us have read. I know we're not talking about this on the same scale. I was just wondering, um, to me, we seem to be living through an age of immense change and flux. And I'll give you an example as a context. Um, last year, uh, establishment, cultural institution in London, which I shall not name, uh, invited me to block for them for a, for a series of events. And uh, I was watching performances, and of course I had to make notes to make sense of it so that I can write something later on. And I was using my mobile phone just to make notes, not to make calls, not to tweet, not anything. Immediately, the people who worked there 
almost like vultures coming down saying, what are you doing? Switch it off. And I say, well, I'm going to write a blog for you. Right? And going up and down this hierarchy, in the end they say, no, absolutely not. I just think these are really arcane mentality to me. You're just missing the plot. And likewise, it's really easy for us to say, oh, young people these days don't read very much. But I actually realize reading does not mean holding something in paper. I actually notice a lot of people should read, download whatever it might be on their mobile phone. You know, who are we to make judgment what reading is and isn't? That's just my, my feeling. I'd like to hear some of your views. Thank, Thank you. you. Do you want to react to that, uh, Charlie? Um, I, uh, I, I think that's an interesting point about reading. Definitely, the, um, uh, yeah, as if there's a sort of hierarchy of texts that are worth reading. Or, you know, I like this idea that it's becoming more democratic in that sense. Or that if you see someone on their phone, they might not be playing Minesweeper. They might be reading Anna Karenina or something. You know, you can't tell, can you? <laughs> Charlie, did you want to uh, Well, no, I completely agree about reading. I mean, um, I think there's more reading and writing than ever before. and There's more opportunities to write and have published than ever before. But I think that rather than clash of civilizations, what there is is a kind of clash, clash of expectations now. That technology is is changing people's sense of their entitlements to information, voice, connection, so on and so forth. And that, that then is meeting institutions who are unable often to meet those expectations. And so I think that we're going to kind of live through a sort of continuing period of a sort of clash of expectations. But also a kind of clash of expectations, I suppose, Miranda's world and mine. I mean, I grew up in a world pretty much where you kind of went to university, kind of studied hard, got a kind of middle-class job in some sort of profession, and then you got a mortgage, basically. And, you know, that is over. I mean, in the developed world, um, that's pretty much over. That, the, that um, there's a clash of expectations in that sense as well, then, which is about how, how you sustain a sort of sense of life as being about individual advancement and expression in a world where it's become increasingly difficult to sustain it materially. So that, that's going to be a very big thing. I mean, in this economy here, um, how all this plays out with the sense of crampedness and squeezedness that there's going to be for the next two decades will be a very big thing. I'll just react to you, because there is actually research that shows that children now read, if you just count words, <laughs> children now read a lot more than previous generations, as in how much text they read. And there's a big discussion going on in, in terms of inequalities, digital inequalities and digital literacy, which say that actually the world has become a lot more text-based because all, that, all the internet as a, as a medium is very much text-based. Things where you didn't have to have reading or writing skills are now actually involve a lot of reading and writing literacy. So it's really interesting, this perception that we have that, you know, once it's on the phone, it's no longer literacy. Is actually, even when you talk about traditional literacy, and I think what Charlie was saying as well, it's literacy has become a lot more, maybe, than what we used to understand by it. Yes. <coughs> I mostly share the sentiment of the, the panel and even William. Um, my name is William Chan. Um, New York, and now living in London. But let me play a little bit of partly devil's advocate because I, I'm also concerned about this. 
I think the concern a lot of people have about this change, period change, is not easily measurable by quantitative measures. Yes, like many people, I probably read more news now. In the old days, I would read one newspaper. I might subscribe to it, I might just read it at a library or something. Now I can read five, ten newspapers a day easily. These are all free or uh, widely available. And I can certainly read a lot more articles and books and things like that online as well as the, the regular way. The concern, I guess, is in a very short period of time, a lot of the, the things we associate with this technology called a book, which has lasted a long time, bookstores, libraries, um, bestsellers where not just one copy that one person want to buy, but uh, let's say the, uh, the, the by and large middle class and the elite are all reading and talking about it and you read reviews and commentary about it and it becomes part of the dialogue and debate of, of uh, you know, uh, principle and vigorous discourse that acquire second life. That is all potentially being changed. Um, and I guess the concern is, yes, we seem to be getting more and maybe even better, but there's a lot of things that are perhaps going to fall by the wayside that maybe it would be too hard to replicate once we lose it. Um, I don't even know what it's going to be like 20 years from now when many people may not even, on a regular basis, hold a book mm. or magazine or an actual newsprint. Mm. Maybe that's not environmentally a good either. So... That's the concern. The concern is not so much that this new technology doesn't offer us a lot of new benefits and a lot, a lot of new choices, but it seems to do very well against a very old technology and a lot of old pleasures that may not survive the, uh, the onslaught. And I guess that's the real question. Mm. Can you have a reaction from all of you about what is lost? Or, and is it I think you raised very significantly important issues there. Um, I think the romantic in me would like to hope that the book will not vanish as a result of digital space taking uh, a forefront in our day-to-day activities, but I think it will. I think it will very rapidly lose its place, other than as something to be treasured, sort of about treasuring objects. I think books will become treasured objects. They'll be objects of value, of of weight, and of significance over and above um, the day-to-day of reading, which will happen more and more in the digital space, because it's apart from anything economically more viable to do that. Um, But I think also that the way people are learning now is changing so rapidly as well that what we think of as the traditional tools for creating in-depth analysis or response, profound thought, contemplation or intellectual um, debate is also going to shift. I I was looking at, I just got back from um, Barcelona for Mobile World Congress, which is the big show where everybody shows off their latest technologies hellish but interesting in a way um, and for example I was looking at the new Samsung phablet which is like halfway between a phone and a tablet computer the Galaxy 8S and um, it has this facility now on the operating system to split the screen so you can be viewing a film, reading text and communicating <laughs> in social media simultaneously and I thought that was really interesting because it's to me, it was, it was like looking at it and thinking, how does my brain actually work best? How do I 
ingest information most efficiently and effectively. You know, the printed page is the byproduct of time and and what we could use. You know, we started with tablets, we went to print, and now we've got this. And I don't know if it's better or worse, but my brain can take in lots of things all at once. And I think brains are responding to that. Our brain hasn't changed, I don't think, significantly over that time, but it's an incredibly powerful tool. And I think the technologies that we, we're using now to in, ingest content haven't caught up in any respect with what the brain is capable of doing and the way we learn, and that's what's fascinating. Because I think we're an experiment running alongside the technology. Every year I see a new iteration and a new development and a new size and a new screen and a new speed and new ways to access, but... Even so, it's, it's still just the next iteration. It's, it's almost like what you were saying, like there's nothing original. It's just, it, it keeps changing. The same way that the poetry's responding to that. The technologies are changing too. So I don't know the answer, but I think that there are issues around three-dimensional learning and engaging that will be very, very central to the way that we, we learn and share in the future. Yeah, to what's lost. I think um, this idea of attention seems important. I think I saw a prototype of something like, which is like a little screen that sort of goes there, so you can talk to people, and then you sort of tune out because you get an email. You get a message. Yeah, ear, yeah. They're saying now these things are going to have. You'll be clipping something into your ear, and it'll tell you when there's a message. Yeah. And it'll tell you the message, so you won't even get your computer thing out of your pocket. Uh, yeah. Just talk to you and you can switch in and out when you... Yeah, I think I always instinctively, when you hear someone on the radio saying, oh, you know, oh, people just look at their phones on the tube all the time now or something, I, 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 I tend not to go for that sort of idea. But I think there is probably a point where this, this idea of attention just becoming so um, dispersed all the time. Um, I find when I'm using the internet, I, I never just have one tab up. You know, there's, I have a whole row. And it's not like I'm... And when I'm focusing on one thing, I'm always changing around as well. And uh, or even when I'm reading, I'm then looking at a screen cool. sometimes. Yeah. But why yeah. is that? Is that because you have attention deficit I, disorder, or is it because I, <laughs> your brain is working very quickly? I think the... Uh, no, I think it's, the, I think it's the nature of the form, isn't it? I, I think it's interesting. I think it's interesting that um, the I idea that the idea, oh no, that the idea that literary yeah. forms or any sort of uh, form of text is a is a product of the technology that it comes in. So, like a novel is, a, you know, in a way, the reason the novel's the length it is and stuff is to do with you know binding technology and stuff, isn't it? Or the famous example is like a, a you know a vinyl album. You know, an album being forty five minutes is isn't because that is somehow the perfect amount of music to listen to is because that's how long, that's how much music you could fit on them. So I think like uh, this idea that um, there's something, there is something very pleasing about these forms and I, I personally feel like they'll, they'll continue, like the, the, they'll probably change and react as well though I don't think anyone should feel sad about that necessarily. I like this idea of like, Luke Kennard has a novel in, set in the future where there's a, there's a high school that still gives out material on paper which is seen as this incredible luxury. There's something about that that sort of rung true suddenly. It's like, actually, it's all going to be digital. You're never going to be given out you know, text handouts in schools, probably. I suddenly thought maybe there is something about seeing things on paper which it demands your, uh, your, atten- your attention more. Um, I don't like reading novels on a screen. You know? uh, I, I don't like that. There's something to do with the, the, con- you know, the, the heft and the, um, the size of the page and the paper and... That's conducive to reading a novel and conducive to the type of attention that, uh, or the type of sort of, I don't know, 
semi-trance state you get into when you're really enjoying a novel. Um, that seems integral to the form. It almost seems pointless to me to publish like an, a novel ebook. It's like I don't really want to read a novel on a screen, or you know, I think it, there'll be other literary forms that will evolve to meet the possibilities of those of, of screen technology, and the novel probably belongs in a book. Um, but people have been saying that the novel's going to die out forever. I mean, it never does. Yeah. Charlie, do you want to have a reaction? I think there's a few more questions. Well, uh, just, just very quickly, I mean, I think that there, is, um, there are things that will get lost, but it's, it's important to kind of think about which of those really matter, I suppose, and not to um, sort of uh, over-romanticise or become nostalgic about things that never applied to most people anyway. So... Um, we may lose experiences which only ever were available to a very small minority of people. Um, but I do think that, in general, we need um, we need to, we will need to become much better at managing our attention, our connection, our ability to um, switch off and get away, and our ability to really connect with one another in ways which don't depend on all of this stuff. And one of the problems with all of this stuff is the constant sense that you could be somewhere else. Because something more interesting is probably happening somewhere else. That, And so your ability to just be where you are um, becomes much, much harder. So how, how far that was ever the case for how many people, I don't know. But I think that that's very, very important. But the only other thing that I would say is that there is this sort of debate which you refer to. Actually, quite a lot of what you talked about was technology, but quite a lot of it is really about hierarchy and authority as well, I mean, a sort of more ordered world. Um, and we've certainly, all these industries are becoming increasingly disordered and chaotic in different ways. But that's partly their own doing as well. Yeah. I mean, what's yeah. driven publishing the way it has is not just being digital, but, you know, it's been their own search for commerce mm. and all the rest of it. I mean, they've turned themselves into an industry for Tesco so that you can now only get a book published if you're, you know, a chef or a celebrity or it's ghostwritten or what have you. And that's their part of their reaction to that. Just as actually in some ways culture becomes more reverential in some ways and more sort of even more high-flown and so on and so forth. So in other words, I think there's a kind of an enormous amount of cross-currents going on. And so it's very, very important not to think, really, I think about technology, but what you're trying to do with it and what kind of values you, you want it to sort of embody rather than whether it's a book or an iPad oh, or, a, or a what have you. Okay. You have a question? Okay, I think we'll take a few questions at the same time. Okay. We'll go um, here and then somebody, I think, there's somebody else there. They've not put their hand down. Okay, so we'll have here a question. It's a quick well, follow-up. questions there. And then Miranda, you were saying that you were saying, uh, I'm not sure if I've managed to catch up with this ability to read three things at the same time. You're looking at one thing, you're reading another, you're just listening to somebody <coughs> saying. Now, the question is more for me. Well, how about the new generations, the ones that have are been, I think there's a big debate about they are developing some other sets of skills. Mm. However, are they missing on the uh, other important skills, that capacity to focus and to work like in a certain fashion so as to how that could, could that hurt our future in terms of uh, scientific discoveries? Or is our brain going to be shaped in that kind of hyperactive way? And will that actually have a consequence 
on other abilities or not. Maybe it doesn't. Okay, let's take uh, two more questions and then we can um, Dr. Keith Postler, I'm a lecturer in management and marketing, um, so that's my declared academic interest. Um, one fact uh, I have to say um, for the, the, that my question depends upon, and that is that so far the psychological research has shown that multitasking um, diminishes the ability to make decisions and it diminishes um, the production. Um, and this is in workplaces and in work environments. Um, so um, my question then depends on the, the democratization of literacy, which is what you're talking about, making this available across a platform, um, then um, means that most decisions are taken on the basis of feeling. People, I feel this, I feel that. Practically, what's important now is the focus on feeling that people have. And this means that we're getting a, a, a tremendous loss because you can't make one decision on the basis of feeling since everybody may feel differently. There are canons of making judgments that depend on evidence. And I feel the greatest loss is that now we are losing the ability to make decisions on the basis of emphasis of, of um, um, yeah, the, the basis of cri critical evidence, and I notice that both in teaching and in the research that I that I see. And my question then is, what can one what can one do about this, or can anything be done about it? Okay, right. Um, you, I, I realized you had a colleague who's left, but let's go around while you think about answers to this question. Yeah. Uh, Carl Allen, I'm retired, but I used to make a living describing things. A fairly good living, I might add. So the topic is new, me new media and the future of literacy. Two um, points. One, until the cost of access goes down, there's no democracy in this new media. It's still too expensive to download. Standard charges are still too high. And two, once the course of access really goes down, the next genius, mathematical genius, for example, is just as likely to come from somewhere like in that picture as in any university because the pool of people going to be able to access knowledge will be that much greater. And importantly, the pool of people with uncluttered minds because too many of our minds are cluttered by modern day living, is actually going to come from some place like that. Thank you. Right. Three questions, too, about multitasking and what we can do about it, and one more about access and, <laughs> and um, the future of literacy in a, once access has opened up. Any of you want to start with a reaction? Charlie? Well, uh, yeah. uh, just... Just uh, a couple of thoughts. I mean, your, your question, I was reminded of um, meeting uh, Neil Turok, who's a theoretical astrophysicist, and uh, who runs this Perimeter Institute in Waterloo. And um, basically, I don't think they've got any books. 
Um, so everything is digital and online. So they search through these huge open archives of kind of theoretical physics, but all theoretical physics is done on a blackboard. So it's like a kind of thing. You have to do it on a blackboard. Um, and they've got the best blackboard in the world. <laughs> and then they've chosen the slate and the quarry and all the rest of it. So this is just a way of saying, in a funny kind of way, that perhaps the future, the best way to think about the future, is that you sort of get rid of the industrial bit. Um, and you do a lot with the new, but you recuperate the old. So, you know, the best example, I suppose, of the sort of active, engaged complete way of learning is learning a musical instrument. So if more technology were really like learning a violin, and these things are so unlike violins, aren't they, in their experience. So if we were if you were to use that as your measure, how could you make an iPhone like a violin? Then then that's a measure of how far we might have to go to make them really sort of sing, I suppose. Do you see what I mean? But it, it might be a, a mixture of the very old and the very new, very, very old fashioned things and very things together. Um, and your question about multitasking, which I, I completely agree with, I mean, it raises a very interesting prospect that if people are knowingly less productive because they're multitasking, and they're multitasking, are they doing it deliberately? I mean, in other words, are we deliberately making ourselves less productive, almost as a kind of, a kind of act of refusal? Um, because actually we pretend to be productive but we really know we're not because actually we're just doing ten things very, very badly. Um, but I'm not sure I do agree with you that, um, that the kind of world we're in necessarily means that there's less evidence. There would be people who would say that on the contrary what these things are doing are now generating evidence in huge quantities about what we do, why we do it, when we do it in sort of big data, real data terms. And what we'll find is our lives crunched ever more by, by all of that. Um, and as, as for you know, where the next mathematical geniuses will come from, I mean, it's a long, long step, but you only have to go to those places to see the utter abject failure of the still-expanding Victorian school system as it spreads itself around the world mm -hmm. in India, Pakistan, China, Asia and elsewhere to see that the possibility that you might get different kinds of learning and different kinds of knowledge in different ways through these things is, is absolutely immense. And time and time again I am impressed by the sense of possibility in those places amongst young people. And that the, the greatest sort of clash of expectation or source of disappointment will be places like Pakistan. Pakistan, you know, um, two-thirds of the population is below the age of 25. By 2030, 2040, there'll probably be another 65 million young people with an abjectly failing school system. So this is the real challenge, is whether these things really represent a way to do something completely different in those places, or whether they're just toys. And, and some of the time, I think they're, they're huge and full of potential, and some of the time I fear that we're, we're deliberately kind of underplaying what they're capable of, I suppose. I'm not going to attempt to answer that. Any, I think that was a wonderful, a wonderful way to put it. Um, 
Uh, I think the attention span thing, the multitasking thing, probably is true. I know plenty of well friends I know who who write novels use soft new software to block internet use routinely now, so they can't use the internet during the day um, simply because it's there. <coughs> it's, it's too easy to it's too easy to do it. But I, for me, I find and maybe this is to do with poetry. I, I find sometimes that that sequence of sort of non-secretors or, um, or sort of um, seemingly random um, coincidings of things, if you spend a lot of time online, actually quite interesting and, and in a weird way sort of productive. I feel like it's... I feel like I'm making connections between things that I wouldn't be making otherwise. I mean, that might be through viewing, you know, a, a variety of different mediums and a, and a variety of different texts on different subjects over the course of a quite a short amount of time. It's revealing. You say feeling. Are you? How do you mean, feeling? You just said, you feel you are. Yeah, are sure. Are you? Well, I... Well, I don't see how you cannot base it on feeling. I mean, I, I, obviously I can't be certain, can I? How could I, how could I be certain about it? I, I, I feel like it is interesting to me, you know. I, I, don't, I don't feel it's a completely... Uh, destructive or um, immobilising feeling. Like, I think a lot of people say that about using the internet a lot. It's a sort of strange feeling of visibility on there. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, that, that is sort of, um, yeah, mentally immobilising. But I think it can work the other way. Maybe it is a question of, uh, of, of putting your brain into a slightly different um, state after a while. And, and you do become sort of... Um, yeah, open to connections that you might not otherwise. I don't know. I, f- I feel that's the case for me. I find jumps sometimes interesting like that, even though they may not have a direct connection. You sort of you're putting two things together, and sometimes sometimes there's a, there's a route there that I wouldn't have thought about otherwise if I hadn't seen those two things close to each other. I, and I think you know, even even if that is a bad thing, there's nothing really anyone can do about it. You know. It's, it's, it's going to it's going to keep happening. You know, people are going to keep people are going to use the internet. So, you know, uh, it would seem that that it will it will we'll see what happens. I suppose, but um, I certainly th- I, d- I wouldn't I wouldn't say it was only a a limiting or a flattening or a you know a, a prioritization of sort of surface knowledge, which is what people often say about internet use. I think it does sometimes open up other possibilities. Mm-hmm. Just very briefly on the decision-making aspect of your question, um, working within corporate culture man- and a lot of senior management um, environments, what I find interesting is that the digital space creates visibility amongst people. And rather than the multitasking stopping them from, from wanting to make decisions, it's the fact that they don't want to own a decision um, when their I- engagement with it is so transparent. And so you get these hierarchies that are quite extraordinary that run through corporations, through stakeholders, through lots of layers before a decision can ever get reached because the access to data and the access to communication is so immediate that as soon as you do something, somebody else has got access to it and it just goes round in these incredibly difficult um, kind of cobwebs of communication. And I think that is a massive challenge for business in general. Um, on On a significant level, I've seen it happening across European and global teams of people where t- so much time and money gets lost through that process. And that's a digital issue, you know, mm. because everybody can be involved all the time. Mm. Okay. 
Um, there's a question there at the back. Is there anybody else who has another question? If not, we just take that one. <laughs> Uh, Nico McDonald, uh, I'm interested in this question of the subject and the object of us and technology, which obviously underwrites this discussion. And Charles described it as a dynamic interaction which was, uh, in which they redefined each other. And I, I'm interested because actually I think, Charles, you described one way in which that interaction happened, which was the technology influencing society. So you contended that smartphones or those kind of tools would lead, I think you said, to a, uh, an explosion of reading, writing and dissenting. Now, the discussion of the relationship between technology and society is quite old, from Marx to Churchill and McLuhan have all commented on how these things evolve. It seems to me, certainly the current narratives, are, including around literacy and digital, always talk about the technology as having agency and being the thing that's making the change and not about us uh, either consciously or unconsciously shaping the technology. And I think actually the discussion has evolved rather more subtly in that we're starting to talk a bit more about social trends. So we're talking about, I think Miranda perhaps a little bit um, lightly talking about ADD as being uh, an issue. I mean, I don't, I'm not sure whether ADD exists, but certainly we've had a broader discussion about attention and authority and so on. And I think those are things which there definitely are challenges around your leadership question I think is actually more that our leaders don't want to take responsibility for anything political and corporate leaders the visibility makes it more difficult for them but I think the, their lack of willingness to take responsibility uh, is a sort of a priori event to the technology if you like um, and I think if you look at decision making you know, we're in a society where we can't make decisions about things, you know, where to put train lines how to organise social security Healthcare. We, we, no, we don't. We can't make. You know, we used to have decisive decision-making leaders, and we used to have a view about things. So I think, in a way, the social trends have come first and are influencing the kind of technologies we use. We choose technologies that allow us to have 15 tabs open at the same time and look like we're doing 10 things at once, and we're really doing nothing. Although, actually, you know, uh, some of us are quite productive in that way. I like to think. Um, but so in the question of literacy and literature, I mean, we're at a literary festival. We're not really talking about, I, mean, I think Sam did, but we're not really talking about literature and what's happening in literature and what role it plays in society. And I, I'm interested in what are the social trends which are shaping the way, our attitude towards literature and the kind of literature we create. You know, have we created literature about the recession, for instance? How are we were using literature to reflect on the kind of society we're creating at the moment? Are, are we doing that well? Are we doing that appropriately? Uh, and that seems to me the, the, the first question is what's happening in society. Of course, the technology, as I think, Sam, you very eloquently said, will allow us to shape new forms of literacy which are not just novels on Kindle, good as they are, and I would read one on a Kindle. Um, so see, I, I want to know what you think is happening in society that's shaping us as a cultural attitude towards literacy and how that may be then being reflected in the kind of technologies we choose to engage with literacy and, and then how technology might influence and shape the kind of literary literacy we, we, we create. Thank you. I'll, I'll follow that up with a question of myself, actually, because um, a lot of the research that I do is in, in digital inequalities, actually, in relation to literacy. And, and what we see, even in societies where access is widespread, is that it's only certain people where social inequalities are actually quite starkly reproduced online. And, and my question, I guess, really for all of you is, 
is um, if everybody is going to be doing this, if everybody's going to be producing, if everybody's going to be ta- multitasking and doing all these things at the same time, whose voices in the end are going to be heard? Mm. What, what is the process that is going to shape um, how technology is used and maybe designed to have certain people be participating in this world and other people maybe not? Um, no matter how wonderful the possibilities and opportunities are, there's likely to be going to be some styles and some forms and some people that will be more likely to take that up. So I guess it's a little bit of a continuation of social trends and technology. Mm. Um, yeah, I'd, uh, I thought that was a really interesting point, actually. Um, something about uh, the... I, I can really only speak probably about poetry for this, but something I've, I've definitely noticed... Um, in, in a lot of poetry, especially stuff I've encountered here, but I think this is a, a point of, you can make about poetry generally, is that this idea of indecisiveness that's come up, but that sort of, um, to me, sort of hints at this idea of uncertainty generally, and like almost I think there's a, there's a sense in some writing, in a lot of writing, I think, and actually the romantic poets as well, you know, um, Keats talking about um, uh, negative, his whatever the term is, um, <laughs> negative capability, um, <coughs> That, that this sort of position of uncertainty is actually integral to the act of, of writing anything. You have to not know what your, what your inquiry, where your inquiry is going to some extent. Um, if you knew, you wouldn't need to write the poem about it or you, would, you wouldn't want to. So I think this, this position of like... Uh, I think something like that, uh, you know, the internet has make, makes apparent is, is how much you don't know. You know, it, there's, there's almost... Because there's this sort of um, almost, almost visual representation of information... And it, as a as a as a web, you know, sort of conceived as a web, um, you're aware of, of how of how sort of little your sort of um, your your circle of knowledge covers of that entire uh, area, and and this is just knowledge that is represented. Um, so I think this this idea of um, I certainly uh, something that I think is actually often a feature of um, of a, of you know great novels and, and great works of poetry is this refusal to take up a position of anything other than uncertainty and anything other than um, uh, than, than 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 complete doubt and and uh, complete uh, sceptical attitudes to anyone who says that they do know the answers. You know, um, uh, it, it's funny that this may have like uh, this maybe maybe that um, maybe that perspective is sort of being articulated in slightly different ways now and the way, the way politicians evade. You know, mistakes were made, or whatever. You know, it wasn't nobody made a mistake. You know, um, so I think like this, this, this thing about uh, yeah, of, of of wanting to continually defer a judgment or responsibility until some until someone is, is has to make one, perhaps. But I think there's certainly features in 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 a lot of new writing that I've read that um, this translates to style, really. Um, so so it results in a sort of uh, perhaps stylistic tropes. Which would be completely flat, completely, you know, seemingly completely objective literary style, rather than one which uh, attempts to convince or visualise something for the viewer. I think someone like Tao Lin is is probably like the the, the most uh, recognisable example of a literary style like that. It's sort of almost autistic in its in its complete flatness and and, and self awareness that it, he's making a, a piece of literature. Um, and that that, uh, that he's not going to say anything that can't just be fact. Um, that uh, this is almost the inverse to the argument about the novel, isn't it? Which is like it's uh, you go uh, when when film happens, what can film not show you? It can't show you the workings of someone's mind. It can't it can't give you their um, 
their sort of inner thought processes, which is where the novel should go. And it's almost as if he's refusing that completely and saying, I'm only going to show you something that could be a film. You know, it's almost like this, this re- reluctance to make judgments or, um, or, or, or have authority about, about the world is, is experienced as a, as a style. Um, I think that's, that's in, interesting and, uh, and sort of troubling, but it, it, does, it does strike me as uh, strangely honest um, when I read his work. So I think there's, um, the, it's funny how these ideas are probably sort of um, yeah, becoming articulated in more um, yeah, ways that are perhaps just more, sort of more infective of culture generally, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, Well, briefly, I think an interesting um, shift in fiction writing is, in in digital terms, um, is in the the space that's been created that is a real-time space for writing and the way that people respond to that through their fiction online. Um, Blogs, obviously, create a new environment for writing, which is almost live writing, where nothing's getting edited or polished, so work continuously moves and shifts and develops. Um, and also, the, you know, the reader's very important within the context of the writing. People are reading in different ways as well. So they're reading on the bus, they're reading on, on the tube, they're reading you know, on different devices or in, in print or other forms, on phones, on tablets, whatever they're doing. They're doing it in chunks in different ways. And also in a much more... Um, fragmented way. So I think those two factors together create a new fiction space um, and you see it developing through flash fiction online, for example. There's a huge trend now in writing very short pieces that people can read or a lot more episodic writing where you're getting chapters being delivered to you in real time as they're being written, um, which is very different to the process that one would go through in traditional form where you've got an editorial system that creates something that is complete. So I think that's a huge shift that is natural and actually quite exciting in some ways and in other ways could, could pose a question of, of quality as well. Do you think hand. that's a social change or a technological change? I, I think, think the question was how much is that social? I think it's social as much as it is technological. I think the way we live has shifted so much into 24-7 society and people are doing things... Human behaviour is extraordinary. People... You know, from, from the work I do, we analyse a lot of behaviour with technology. And, you, you know, we're stunned by the amount of people who are, who are actually engaging in, in communications at 2 o'clock in the morning. You know, and you think, what the hell are they doing? But they are. You know, and they're using all their downtime in a very different way to that that one would anticipate. Also, of course, in the evening, <coughs> people are, I mean, this, this multitasking um, Issue. You know, people are watching TV and they're reading, or they're writing, you know, or they're communicating, or they're reviewing, or they're criticising at the same time. So I think that absolutely influences from a social perspective as well as from the technology that supports it. I don't think it's one or the other. I think they're very much married together. I mean, um, so I, I don't know the, the, if you take the question, you know, what kind of literature will the recession produce? I mean, it's produced some, which you might think yeah. is fairly obvious, John Manchester and so on and so forth. But is, is Fifty Shades of Grey, is that recession literature? Because in some, well, in some ways... Is it, it literature? Well, <laughs> but it, it's quite an interesting phenomenon in the sense that 
it's come from nowhere, it's disrupted traditional industries, it's mm. been terribly low cost and it's been very, very commercial at a time when they've needed commerce. To, so it, will we look back and think actually that what happened in literature in the midst of this recession was some shift to some much more commercial and democratic form of culture which is much lower cost and self-help and which people can't kind of predict or control? I don't know. I, I am really struck by the person who reads most in our house, who's our 13-year-old, about just how much there is. I mean, that's the most staggering thing. For that age group, there is such an amass of literature yeah. now and being created the whole time in, in different ways. So, um, but I think you're right, Nico, to remind us again that in, you know, it's not, um, it, it is a sort of interactive thing and what's happening in society matters. What would I say are those things? I mean, I would say that in this society, the experience of being squeezed, cramped and marginal is now going to be a mainstream experience, broadly speaking. And it's, uh, if you want one way of thinking about it, it's going to be like travelling into the future in an, on a sort of overcrowded Pendolino train from Houston where there, isn't, there aren't enough seats um, and you're all jammed together and it's a bit smelly and you're going to wonder whether you're really going to get on together in this sort of journey. But that's what being in Britain, I think, will be like. And it will become tolerable and bearable only through civic innovations to make life bearable that we haven't yet created. So that, that would be one thing. And the second thing is that the main thing that I see, I suppose, is in the way that I think about it, is people in a world awash with systems searching for places where they can feel empathy, where they can feel connection. And that this is a very, very deep-rooted thing, that we are awash with systems which will get us information, goods, prices, you know, so on and so forth, but where is it that we feel in some sense we are with other people? Yeah, that becomes ever more important. And I think the things that can sort of enable that will, be, will really matter. And I think your point about whose voices... Um, I'll just give you one example. I'm chair of something called Apps for Good, which is Apps for Good is an extremely worthy kind of initiative. And it's based on a very simple idea, which is... Um, what would it be like if you could train young people to see a mobile phone as a tool that they could use to create something rather than just to download something? And what kind of education would you need so that they regard this, any one of them, as something that they could make something with, not just download it because someone else has made it and so on and so forth? So we created this eight-week program. It's been, I think we're now in... I think it was 7,000 students in 100 schools. It's been enormously popular. And what it's unlocked is this desire for people to create and make yeah. in a way that isn't really possible. Mm. Um, and um, only Google and Android is really interested in that because it's part of their business model. But actually, Facebook is... We're now doing a Facebook course and stuff like that. But but what's, what's interesting is... We are just one tiny pinprick. There are very few other people doing anything like that. So the idea of how you make people active makers, contributors, shapers is not part of our education system. Mm -hmm. Our education system is going in exactly the other direction. 
Is it not possible to be more, perhaps more cynical about that? Or the idea that you're training people to make free you know, apps for free for for Apple or something? You know that maybe it's possible to have another, you know, and, and to oh, read yeah, it on yeah. a sort of another level. You might say this is sort of unpaid labour. Okay. You know, like <laughs> I don't know. Like. Tilling the fields for Apple and Amazon and <laughs> in different ways. I mean, that is what we are all now doing. But no, it's it's within accepting that. It's just it's just saying, well, if if you get a group of fifteen-year-olds and say, well, if you were to develop an app that would be really useful for you, sure, yeah, yeah. how would you do it, and what would it be, yeah. and what would it take you to see this as a tool for you and you as an agent rather than you just as a download or an upload. A passive sort of, you know, yeah, yeah. As a sort of, not, not passive, because it's sort of multi, multitasking kind of passive. It's a sort of active passive, isn't it? It's a sort of strange... Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. actually, this is sort of a part of what we've all been describing, where your account of your big companies who are kind of constantly talking but never acting... It's how how can we all be so busy and do nothing? Mm-hmm. I mean, that is kind of one of the sort of ironies of life that we're all busier than ever, and yet in a funny way nothing changes. Sort of thing. And this is what it was like when I worked in the centre of government. That the centre of government I used to describe as stagnant urgency mm-hmm. because everything was absolutely <laughs> urgent. I mean, you could you know, had to do it, mm. but nothing ever changed. Yeah, it's and it's the uh, same your experience with a mobile phone. You, I must get it. Oh, it's the same thing as I got yesterday. Yeah, I must. There's a term swarming vacancy, which swarming I think is vacancy. very nice, but it's actually used. I th- someone uses it to describe the sort of yeah poetic trance, you know, the moment of creativity. So right. I think for me, it's they d- sometimes perhaps are strangely similar though in the descriptions of these things. Perhaps perhaps this sort of almost like being a filter for all this information and right. content and images. Maybe there is something creative about that in the sense that you're having to organise it as you're, as you're experiencing it, you know. Um, but no, I, I, I agree with that. Okay. Um, we have about five minutes, and I think my experience is, is that we have another, if we have another question and another discussion, we'll go over time. So I'm just going to ask uh, the three people on our panel if they have anything that they want to say in closing, and then if you have <coughs> any more questions... We're going to be outside. There's going to be some um, refreshments, and I'm sure people will be happy to continue the conversation um, in a different environment. Would you like to, Miranda? Maybe we could start with you, and then see if we can have a closing well, statement um, from all of you. Um, <laughs> I think in closing, I think there have been so many really interesting issues raised tonight, and I don't think there are any conclusive answers mm-hmm. to be found. We're in a very live, moving and very fast-changing cultural moment. Um, and I think that the, the social changes and globalisation and the technologies are all part of that same movement. And, and I think it's up to us all to take a responsibility for how we use it and how we share it and how we educate people that come after us to manage it as well as we can. I have children and I find it very difficult to control their usage of technology um, and, and it was interesting, somebody said to me the other day, and I thought it was a really good point, that our generation is aghast at all the dreadful stories of sexual abuse that are coming out about the generation before us, really, and when we were children, what was happening, and how people turned blind eyes, and how we, what, what's going to be our children's moment? What are they going to turn back and say, how could you guys have let that happen? And I think it will be the open access to information for that generation, and the lack of 
any kind of management around how it's being used and how how good or bad it is for our health. I think that's going to be the issue, and I think it will change, and I think we will start to manage it in a different way. But I think we're currently in a place where it's, it's, it's moving so rapidly and we are such guinea pigs to, to it all. Charlie? Um, yes, I, 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 what I suppose one of the things we haven't really talked about is, is we have accepted a kind of notion of literacy as being about reading, writing and text and I do think that basically picking up on Miranda's point really is that what we'll need to be increasingly literate about is presenting ourselves I suppose because we are constantly presenting ourselves and really the biggest kind of issue is is not, uh, for me will not be them saying how on earth did you allow us to have access to all that information but more how did you allow all these other people to have access to me? To us, yeah. Um, yeah. I think and that's um, right. why didn't you warn me yeah. that you know I shouldn't have done that and so on and so forth? And th- that means that sort of you know you're encouraging a sort of um, we will have to encourage an almost if you go back to that sort of notion of letter writing that you learnt in primary school that there will be times when you have to present yourself to the world and when you do you better put on a tie and write a letter and go well actually you're doing that the whole time now mm. basically mm. And, and so this sort of constantly visible presenting mm. self that you're constantly presenting yourself and you, that, that is a new kind of level of um, exposure yeah exposure Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, oh, only end something sort of going on from your point, Charles. That, um, uh, I think from the point of view of writing, of, of of trying to write, it seems I sort of maybe expected this point to come up to to the, um, the idea that that writers often seem asked to market themselves now. You know, like I uh, have friends who uh, have a first book out or a, a, a yeah first novel out. It's like. Oh well, you should be all over social networks with this. You know, you should be doing marketing your book and stuff like that. And I think because so many, so many writers, <coughs> um, some I think sometimes the urge to write comes out of this peculiarly, you know, peculiarly developed private world sometimes. And so the the transference of that to a public arena is sometimes really uncomfortable. Um, but I've started to see a few. I think there's a few examples of people approaching the the idea of marketing their book almost as an extension of the book itself. Yeah. And we were talking about this a little bit earlier. But the, the idea that um, the content that surrounds the book and stuff is it, just as much a part of the creative project. Uh, and this is, a, in a funny way, a way of diffusing this uh, or or at least complicating this idea of, oh, I'm, uh, you know, I'm just sort of put, making myself visible here as someone who's trying to sell their book, which isn't a very appealing look anyway, you know. You know, my book's out everyone, do you want to... You know, I think there's probably more... Imag- the more imaginative people are about using these networks to do that sort of thing, the, 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 actually the less narcissistic it is, in a way. It, it's sort of a more generous thing, perhaps. And, and as this sort of um, branding of, of the sort of self doesn't only apply to writers anyway, does it? Like, it applies to anyone who's got a... You know, a, who's on a social network of any sort. I think a sense of creativity about it is perhaps what enables it to become justifiable and as, as a type of social play as well, rather as a type of performance, knowingly, rather than a sort of um, horrifying exposure of someone in a, you know, a bad place or something like that. Mm-hmm. That's a horrible place to stop, but I can't <laughs> okay. stop there. Thank you for those last words. Okay, I would like to thank everybody who was here and definitely the panel. Here.